Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown and joined in the Asia Tech Podcast virtual studio by, let me get the pronunciation right, Linda Velassenrod. Hey, well. (laughs) I did actually practice off air, so thank you very much, Linda. Linda is the program director for Shenzhen for the International Newtown Institute of Almere in uh, Netherlands. So, Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, I mean, we've got to talk about Shenzhen first. I mean, what, you know, why does that require a program, you know, uh, in the first place? And, you know, why is it the, of interest of people studying new towns and for yourself with a background in architecture as well? Why is that of interest? So tell us a little bit about your sort of experience with Shenzhen. Maybe you can sort of take us back to your first sort of contact with that city and why it sort of made an impression upon you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, my first time to China was actually in 2005 when I was uh, curating an exhibition on contemporary Chinese architecture. And then I traveled to basically all the different cities in China, the major cities at a time. And um, I remember that actually Shenzhen was not on my list, but uh, I was in Hong Kong where I started and I just crossed the border. Mm. Um, since there was a very exciting city on the other side of the border, a very new place, and that was Shenzhen. And it felt a very awkward place at that time. So in 2011, when I was invited by the International Newtown Institute to actually set up a research and exchange program with Shenzhen, since um, they thought that was a very interesting place and I had a lot of experience in China, I felt a little bit uneasy because I had a very strange feeling still about this city. Um, but the fascinating thing with Shenzhen is that it is indeed a, a new town. People are thinking Shenzhen will not consider themselves as a new town because it's a huge place nowadays. Mm. But it really started off as a collection of small fishing villages. Um, basically, in the territory where Shenzhen now lies, it was about... 300,000 people. And now unofficially, it's about 20 million. So um, when it was founded in 1979, uh, as as a special economic zone to experiment with capitalism and new ways of, of, of building a city, um, it has grown um, so fast and it has experienced so many different phases that for us as INTI, the International Newtown Institute, we thought that would be a very exciting place to actually see how it was designed and how it actually um, expanded so rapidly. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Because um, if you look at major new towns, I mean, especially in the West, we have experienced many new towns, especially after the Second World War, um, which was really based on modernist functions, so, um, or say modernist principles, so a clear distinction of functions, living and working, really on, uh, really separated. So it's a very clear idea about how a city should be constructed. And in Shenzhen, you see a slightly different picture because there you see that there is a lot of being things being planned, but also a lot of things that are not being planned right. because the city grew so fast that planners actually were always behind the development that was taking place. Mm. So, um, and say from our um, statement of what Inti wants to do, it really wants to look at how cities have been planned and how they in, how they developed over time, but also to use our lessons learned, especially also in the West, to look at this, the, the, the new towns of today and of the future. So that through the learning process and doing the research that we can actually exchange ideas, but also see how we can make improvements. Mm. So Shenzhen for us as an international case uh, was was just fascinating from the beginning because it is indeed a very particular place that has a lot of elements that are, I think, uncomparable to, to other places in the world. Yeah. It's fascinating because when you talk about your story about going to China the first time, 2005, is that it wasn't on your itinerary, right? It wasn't sort of, you know, where you probably were looking at the obvious choices like most people do if they go to Asia. They probably think about, okay, if I want to look at the future, maybe I look at Tokyo, Seoul, maybe Beijing or Shanghai, Hong Kong, etc. But that's what, to me, makes Shenzhen fascinating. because it's, it's sort of not very well known, is it? it? Despite, you know, you say it's 20 million people. I mean, it's amazing. How could a city so big be so unknown in the world i mean do people know about it outside of asia i don't know i don't know anybody who knows about it outside of it, apart from people who work for the inti like yourself 
What do you find mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been working in China for such a long time already that it's, it's a bit difficult to, right. uh, to think back in time in that regard. But I think, I mean, every time I explain what I'm doing, I'm always saying Shenzhen, which lies next to Hong Kong. Right. Um, so I always need to define where it is is exactly and uh, what is happening with many new towns and that's of course our experience that new towns always have like a sort of bad reputation uh, because mm. they are always boring and um, uh, they are outdated and um, so also Almere where Inti uh, was located uh, previously also that has a very bad reputation all over the Netherlands except for the people who actually live in Almere. And I think it's the same with Shenzhen. Well, it's slightly different because people who are living in Shenzhen really like it because it's very dynamic. It it brings all kinds of opportunities. It's a very entrepreneurial city, uh, but it's not particularly beautiful. It doesn't have mm. so much history to it, at least not at first sight. Um, but people who live in Shenzhen are actually very proud of, uh, of that city because of its possibilities. And I think also in the rest of, of China, it was really an experimental place. Um, and lots of people came to the city to make money because it was actually the first place where they could do that. And of course, China came out of a period of extreme poverty uh, before 79. So it was really a way... Um, Shenzhen was founded or say as, as one of these special economic zones to experiment with capitalism, as I already said, uh, but also to bring in new sources in order to, to bring people out of poverty. So it has, and it was, has been very successful. So it has a very, very good reputation, at least in China itself, outside of it. Indeed, people tend to go to Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, nowadays also a little bit more, but Shenzhen is indeed quite unknown. Mm. Uh, that also has something to do with the legacy that it is a very young city and um, um, not so much history to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I read about it and I obviously ex, you know, exposed to the people that live there and you know are involved in building it from the grassroots up, really. There's many things that come out of Shenzhen which amaze me. Is that, I mean, we've t- touched upon some of them, like the, the rapid speed of growth, the fact that it's a young city. It's also a young city in the sense that average age is very low, I think. I've seen some very anecdotal evidence about how the average age of uh, Shenzhen is much lower than any other city in China. So that, that must have sure. an impact on the culture as well. And there's also, again, it's anecdotal about the number of foreigners living there. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's often hard to actually quantify that. There's a large number of expats living in Shenzhen, which is interesting. This makes for an interesting dynamic culture as well. well what's it actually like you know, for you as an architect looking at that city then, like, you know, what what does Shenzhen get right? You know, because it has a lot of opportunity now. Is it a great place to live? Do you think it's getting it that part of it right? Because that's often something when people think about China, it's like, okay, these are great cities and great opportunities, but uh, do I want to live there? Not quite sure. It's not the same as living in Almora, for example. You know, what, what do you think they're getting <laughs> right there? Um... Um, well, I'm, I'm not an architect, but I'm an architecture historian, so I don't design anything. I'm always the one who actually uh, does the research and writes about it and um, tries to have some nice observations So um, uh, to get that right. Now, um, I think Shenzhen, uh, indeed what you're saying, it's a very young city. Um, I've had many Chinese students uh, also here in the Netherlands who all went back to China and then most of them all went back to Shenzhen. Um, and I also asked them, why do you do that? Because um, why is it such a great place uh, to be? And uh, most of the time, it's really about this op- op- the opportunities in terms of finding a job. Um, they consider it a very vibrant place because a lot of things are going on. There's so much culture. Um, so some people uh, do um, tend to prevail in that regard. But it's a very green city. Um, the moment you, I mean, I've brought many people from the Netherlands on my journeys to Shenzhen also to do workshops and other stuff. And the first thing they keep saying is, wow, this is such a green place. Wow. It's a huge place. I mean, more than almost 20 million people are living there. But what you see, that's it's very green. Lots of parks, um, a lot of greenery along the roads. So a first impression is always very good in that regard. Um, and what I also think is that uh, perhaps it's not so much um, the squares and the roads and the buildings, but that I think 
um, that this entrepreneurial state, which I think is really part of the DNA of this city, um, if you took, uh, if you look at technology, you know, the whole technology, uh, the open source, the makers, um, of course, that is part of that entrepreneurial state. But also, I mean, I've done a research in um, um, in Dalang neighborhood, which I think is a is an interesting case also to because that's an, a very um, small area. It's a bit on the northern side of the city, and it has about 500,000 inhabitants, of which only 9,000 are officially registered, mm. which means that all the others belong to the so-called floating population, and that has to do with the hookah system, that when you are being born in the city, you have a, a city hookah, and if you're being born on the countryside, you have the hookah of the countryside, which means that when you are from the countryside and you go to the city, you have different rights in terms of going going uh, to uh, going to um, medical care or say using medical care education um, all kinds of issues in regard to social welfare anyway so it means that within that region um, you have 500,000 people of which the average age is about 28 so it's it's very 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 young mm. and um, it's a very poor part of the city so what you see then it's very dense so we have lots of urban villages and I think also need to explain that, but a lot of factory compounds and urban villages and not so much in between, so hardly any public facilities, hardly any squares where people can meet and gather. But what you see is that um, the local government collaborates with entrepreneurs, uh, factory owners, uh, volunteers and local residents to actually collaborate on providing social welfare together. So they are organizing singing contests, types of all kinds of different types of activities. And, and so what they normally say about Shenzhen as it's being a top-down organized city, what you see is that the bottom-up activities are thriving. Mm. And is that it's really coming together, which is something which is, say, from our, my Western perspective, is so inspirational because um, here you have endless discussions about, especially in the Netherlands, how to do this, how should, you know, you know top down and bottom up come together in organizing the city. And here you can see that they're already out of necessity are uh, finding new models about how to collaborate and really to see how social dynamics can be influenced. And that, to me, is an example that is just one of the, the examples of, of how open that city is, how critical you can be, um, how open everybody is welcoming um, experiments. And that's why I think also there's a multitude of expats, because they feel rather free. And that's been one of the notions when Shenzhen was founded and how it really attracted also that many people. Of course, they saw opportunities, but there's also a relatively degree of freedom compared to Shanghai and Beijing. Right. So let's talk about that in the context of, you know, you, you've talked about top-down organization of cities, which it works in some cases, right? And, you know, it, when it works, it works really well. I mean, obviously you talked about Shenzhen and people look at places like Singapore as a, as a nation state as well, how well that's done in being sort of very centrally planned. You know, for Westerners, it's always a bit sort of one of those you know, things we can't really get our heads around because we sort of think, well, you know, we believe in the free market, but look, look at how well this has been done when actually you have the central authority to organize things and plan things, right, for us. And then you talk about the bottom-up stuff. I heard you say, and I'm just really sort of pulling your leg a little bit, you said about, you know, local government organized singing competitions. Um, when I hear that, I think, oh, my God, that, that sounds terrible. Like, I, that's like the kind of the... But, okay, so let, let's give it a fair airing. What exactly is that? I mean, is, is, have you actually seen any of these? Or does that... Is it, is it as bad as it sounds? No, I think it's the most exciting thing I've ever seen. But, um, no, uh, I mean, if you talk about top-down, it really is a matter about where do you locate that. So, um, um the singing contest was part of, I would say, a program in regard to social welfare, which is something different than talking about how to organize spatial domain right. uh, or how do you do your urban planning. Um, and actually, within the INTI program, we try to convince also this government, the Dalang neighborhood government, saying how if you applied this, um, you know, this merge of top down to uh, top down and bottom up, 
um, which is a sort of uh, interesting mechanism. It's much more hybrid than I could ever imagine. If you would apply that to urban planning, um, that might be very exciting to see mm. how then you could develop the space or the area. Uh, but that was a bridge too far at that point, mm. uh, because what you see within the urban planning domain is that it's a very, very much top-down planning organism. Uh, or mechanism, I must say, not an organism, but mechanism, excuse me for my English, um, but, um, uh, and that it's very organized in many different departments that do not communicate with each other. So, um, um, so the department on water is uh, doing its things by itself, same for infrastructure, same for housing, um, and say from our perspective, um, uh, we think that a city can benefit much more if it would be more integrated mm -hmm. so that all these departments are more working as a collective. That is really on, say, the urban planning side. What you also see, because it's a top-down planned mechanism, is that there is always a gap between what's being planned on paper and how it really works in real life. Um, so we have been doing giving advice to Guangming Newtown, which is a district also in the north of um, Shenzhen that wants to be a green city. It has made already since its foundation in 2007 to say we want to be green. Um, but they really have a, they really struggle with how to do this. So they design all kinds of things on paper, but then they go to the actual site and they see that the site looks very much different mm. than what they actually wanted to do. So what you see is that, um, they have difficulties in how to face their planning, how to make priorities how to organize this, because they have this tendency for a long time to do the tabula rasa. So you knock everything down and then you start all over again. And Shenzhen can no longer do that. I mm. think also the rest of China can no longer do that because they see also in Shenzhen, it's stuck within its boundaries. It cannot expand. So it needs to transform. Um, so also downtown needs to, you know, it's about regeneration. And um, um, so what I'm trying to say here is that um, this top down and bottom up, um, there, there, you don't hardly see any merger yet. Mm. While the city of Shenzhen grew very rapidly because of its urban villages, uh, which was totally bottom up. So there's always this tension between, um, how to organize the city, how to steer it, mm. and how it then really works in real life where you need to catch up in time. I hope I make myself a little bit clear, but what I noticed in Shenzhen is that there's always this tension between how far you can go um, and when you meet uh, the outside world, and there's still a big gap between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? Because it's not just about Shenzhen, but it's about how you know, we organize cities and we, we, you know, improve our lives in cities around the world, isn't it? And we kind of look for examples of what works and so on. And, and obviously one, one of the areas now that people are interested in is, well, it's not just now, but it's obviously been something on the on the cards for a long time, but increasingly important is about smart cities. It's about, you know, how we can improve traffic, you know, how can we improve, like, pollution, air quality, all the things you mentioned about down to, like, planning of parks and spaces as well, especially as, you know, people's lifestyles change a little bit around the world. And, you know, we have more leisure time, apparently, um, you know, and... We're not necessarily, you know, now people aren't commuting so much, maybe. So all these kind of things are changing. And we're trying to look at what what could a city actually be, you know, and mm -hmm. how do you do that? And you sort of mentioned, was it Guangming, as an example, is that what, maybe that's the approach that works, is where you say, we're going to be a green city, okay? And that means to make this work, it needs to be a decision made by as few people as possible. <laughs> you know, because once you start putting that into a committee and you have voters for example, and that gets difficult, isn't it? And I always wonder if that's the thing that, you know, European and American cities struggle with, isn't it? You know, they try and put a bike lane in and it's like they put in like a kilometre of bike lane and that was like a five-year struggle. But in China, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, we're going to put in 200 kilometres of bike lane or, you know, whatever. It's like it gets done, doesn't it? So there's a real merit for yep. that top-down approach, yep. isn't it? Yep. No, I mean, that's true, um, especially when it, it comes to all of these decisions in regard to the environment. I think they are extremely progressive. So, um, of course, uh, green cities has been a buzzword in China for uh, many years. Now it's about the sponge city. So it's about how you are 
looking at your water management, because also that is a huge problem in Chinese cities, especially in Shenzhen, which is part of Pearl River Delta. So it's about water pollution, but also lack of water at some points and then too much water at, at another moment. So what you see is that I mean, they get that priorities very much right. Um, I think Beijing knows very well where the problems are. Also, when you talk to decision makers in Shenzhen, um, I mean, it's not so much as they are doing. They know very well where uh, where the problems are, and they and they are very much open uh, to uh, criticism, but also to new ideas about this. So when it's about, uh, we believe that all the buses should be, elect, uh, you know, on electric power, they just execute it, and within yeah. one year, it's all done. Um, so what if, I mean, these stories are, are true at the same time, also in Guangming Newtown, which is then not downtown and perhaps less a priority for the city of Shenzhen. So it's a bit further down the road. Um, you see that also there they are pushing this green city idea, which is becoming also part of their branding. Um, but you see that another district also in the outside areas of Shenzhen is doing the same thing and that there's a lot competition and then it's really about how do you bring in the right type of quality and i think that's an interesting moment in time also for china is that they are not just so much focusing on uh, production but that it's also more about bringing in more quality so how can you be more diverse than other parts so it's not about doing business as usual but how can you actually make a difference mm. um of course because we also i mean we receive many times the question why are you there you know, what is the added value of Westerners to what they're doing? And this is, I think, um, still an important bridge that we can, I mean, that there's still something we can add is, you know, how do you steer these developments more profound? Uh, how do you bring in more quality um, using uh, the power of that top-down system mm. that if you're talking to the leaders and they say, we are convinced of your idea, that they're also able to push it and make it happen within just a short period of time. So, it's, it's again, I mean, I, I was talking about this tension that on the one hand, they have the, the power to just execute. And at the same time, when the priorities are not right, when there's too much competition, when um, there's perhaps a sort of, you know, too many uh, uh, changes in political leadership, then it becomes different. And mm -hmm. then it might not be as quick as we think or what the outside world has, uh, I mean, thinks at, about that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? It's like for an outsider looking at what's going on in China or Shenzhen, it, I, th I think the sort of the, the, the result is it work, it, when it works, it works really well, except when it doesn't work. And then, you know, that, that's when it becomes difficult. But, you know, if you were to sort of compare that, let's just say, I mean, you talked about water management as an example. Let's take the extreme opposite perspective it well if you can say it's opposite but in theory you know take somewhere like california which is based on the ideas of the free market not that mm -hmm. that's any different to shenzhen but we're talking officially right you know a place like california is terrible traffic it's got a problem with pollution and water as well as a major problem so do you think like to create better cities you need to have sort of a top-down and dare i use the word autoc autocratic approach is that what is required if you left it to the people i mean let's say for example brexit is a good example of what happens if you leave decisions to the people right mm -hmm. they don't necessarily make the right decisions for themselves so mm -hmm. without getting political do you think that it, sometimes it's better if it's top down um yes i think that in some cases um or well perhaps i think what is necessary, and that's also, I think, uh, when you talked about these smart cities. Um, um, so I'm, I'm taking a curve and then I get back to your question. Um, uh, I've done a project on smart cities also here in the Netherlands. Right. And um, uh, so what you see is that it's a top-down decision to become a smart city. I mean, the city says, you know, we want to be a smart city. Well, nowadays, basically everybody or every city wants to be smart. Um, however, when you look at what is needed to become smart, it's really about, you know, this, the, the collection of data um, in order to uh, measure everything uh, properly. Because if you measure it properly, then you know where the problems are and then you can solve these problems. 
Um, however, if you look at all the different parties that are collecting the data, only the, the government is just a very small portion of all of it. Mm-hmm. So most of the power lies at telecom providers, um, Google, Facebook, all these big, big companies that are collecting data. So they are in power of what they are collecting while um, the government who says we want to be smart um, is really depending on all these other stakeholders on what they actually can do in fulfilling mm. their policies. Um, so also after running this program for several years, the conclusion was that also the government should take more responsibility in regard to data policies, um, also opening it up to the citizens. It's about data empowerment. It's also about being transparent about what data you're collecting in order to have a di- critical discourse. So when it's about uh, managing your city, I think that, and also that has been many, I mean, we've had these discussions also in the Netherlands when the government said, okay, here are the markets, uh, it's up to you. Um, I don't think that works. Um, you need to go to sort of more of a hybrid network where the government um, is much stronger uh, um, working on what its vision it wants to execute. What type of c- city do we want to be? Uh, which I can imagine that it's not just only about being efficient, but it's also about being inclusive and that it's talking about social values and how do you do that as a collective? So um, therefore, I think when you look at China, as I was saying, you know, in terms of setting their priorities, of course, there are lots of things that I don't, that I disagree on, uh, in regard to China and also with Xi Jinping. I mean, his power is, is, is increasing enormously. And you see that it's also becoming much more difficult for foreigners to actually work in China and to, 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 uh, to collaborate. Uh, but regardless of that, I think in terms of how do you improve your cities? Um, I think that a clear vision from the government is actually needed is strongly needed in order to push a certain agenda um, so that you don't leave it just to the market and leave very large groups of people, you, that you leave them out or that you keep them out. Um, I think that uh, the most important objective is to have inclusive cities and using technology or any other measurements, it's much easier to keep or to kick people out than to include them. So you need a strong government um, in order to, to have a discussion or to, to steer a certain agenda in regard to what type of city you want to be. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the fears that Europeans and maybe Americans have about sort of centrally planned cities, uh, smart cities, you know, run which, where the governments really are sort of driving the agenda is that maybe we have a history, we sort of go back to sort of post-war architecture you know, we fear that sort of, you know, that very, that, I, I, what's the word, brutal architecture that we saw in the 50s, that very sort of concrete-based functionalist architecture, which is, I suppose, quite centrally planned, wasn't it? And I say that because, you know, coming from England, there was a lot of that because mm. England got bombed a lot in the war. So there was a need to rebuild and they re- rebuilt with these extremely ugly shopping centers that were just like concrete blocks. They were gray and they were like, it's very futuristic, but extremely ugly. And I think people associate that, or maybe my generation associates that with like, oh, this is what the government can do if you let them build the city for us, right? So, I mean, we, we fear that. I mean, when you, when you look at Shenzhen as an example, do you see sort of any elements of beauty as an example where, you know, that's sort of, you've left all that sort of ugly, brutalist concrete structure behind? Um, well, just going back a bit into history, I mean, I, um, um, it's not just the government that um, uh, built these buildings. I mean, that was done according to certain philosophies also within the architecture field itself. I think in those days, it was shaping a sort of welfare state, um, trying to accommodate a whole society where everybody was equal um, where, um, so you had to accommodate all layers of society. Um, and that was done according to certain principles also in function or say modernistic, uh, movements. Um, and I think, of course, you can look at it and say, oh, that looked awful. But I think it's also important to look at the ideas and the ideals behind it because they were huge. 
Um, of course, we are we have said goodbye to the welfare state and we have embraced uh, neoliberalism um, also in, in, in how to produce cities. Um, so the market is, is playing a much bigger role. I mean, also, if you look at, at Seoul or New Songdo, I mean, it's, it's really um, a different story. Uh, and all these cities also now tend to look more and more alike with, you know, the, the, the high rise and all of that into it. Um, so when you go to Shenzhen, I mean, if you say, are there beautiful parts? Yes, there are def definitely beautiful parts. I mean, if you look at the parks, if you look at public space, I mean, there are indeed very interesting places. And I think that also, um, um, so the, and, and the urban villages, but that is perhaps more of a, sort of a Western perspective that we find those extremely uh, romantic because that's where the real hustle and bustle of cities are, um, are of course um, um, considered to be dreadful uh, according to the Chinese government. So that's another subject. I'm mm. sorry, I'm, I'm, a <laughs> I'm losing track of your question. But, um, <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, what, what, yeah. what, you know, you sort of have alluded to it already, but, you know, when you go to Shenzhen, what, what are the buildings that you're really impressed by or, or maybe the features in the city that you're really impressed by because I you know I travel a lot around the world and you know w one of the things I absolutely love about some cities is the cities you can walk around and you don't get yeah. many cities you can walk around in Asia I mean Hong Kong to an extent you can walk around and I love that because yeah. you know I, I feel ultimately free walking around but you know when you have to get a taxi everywhere I kind of feel like oh, I don't really feel free in this city I feel like I'm contained in a way but if you can walk yeah. around you can explore the parks and the you know like the old churches or temples and I love all that and you know you really get to get a feel for the the city do, do you get any of that in Shenzhen is it a place you can walk around are you, you sort of is there any sort of really nice areas where you you're really impressed by how it's laid out and the structure and so on mm-hmm uh, there are definitely there are certain parts which is I mean that are extremely attractive. I think uh, OCT is one of those neighborhoods where you can actually walk around. Um, I mean the interesting thing of Shenzhen, of course, it, I mean it it was developed along an axis, the Shenan Boulevard, which runs from west to east, and um, um, so it, I mean the city developed really as a linear city, and in 2010 it really got the size that it has now. Um, so this downtown area, I mean, you definitely need taxis to get from one side to the other. It takes sometimes hours to get from one place to the other. So it's, it's really extensive. Um, however, uh, that along that spine, there were areas being developed by developers, more well, state owned companies. Um, and one of them was OCT. So OCT is a very big developer and they also developed this area, which is based in the Nanshan district. And the interesting Thing of this area is that it only has T crossings. So the whole area only has T crossings. Um, and you can cycle there, you can walk there. It's very green. It has old um, factories there that have been renovated, uh, also turned into an art district called OCT Loft. Um, it's very vibrant. Um, you see many people walking around. It has, it seems to have all layers of society. Um, and it has uh, restaurants and it has pubs and it has markets and it has, so it's a very, very nice area to be. Mm. Um, I think is, Sheku, is that the oh, area sorry. that's organized around? It's still like a bit like a lake, isn't it? Or is that, is that OCT that it's kind of got like a inland water area or is, is, there's a place well, in Shenzhen that has that? Well, OCT, I mean, uh, since OCT is a, is a big developer, it oh. has, uh, different parts of the city and also OCT Bay is uh, actually it was uh, is, is constructed around a new lake so that's not that old yet but that's probably what you're referring to yeah. so it's yeah. um, it's uh, and that's really a, um, an area full of restaurants and bars and mm. there's also um, uh, a water theater um, to accommodate uh, hundreds of people uh, um, a huge cinema so that's really on leisure uh, OCT is very good. Also, Windows of the World has been developed by them. So also in the OCT area that I'm talking about, you have this Windows of the World, which is a huge uh, amusement park. Um, so they're very, I mean, that's how they become known and, and, and important is because they constructed amusement parks, but also did these uh, specific uh, development areas. Right. Okay. So I cut you off. You were going to mention another one as well. 
Maybe you what? forget. <laughs> there was a second <laughs> one you were going to mention after OCT, and I cut you off just to get some clarification. Oh, yeah, true. That's true. Um, that was uh, that's uh, Sheko. Really? So uh, Sheko was actually uh, developed by China Merchants, another uh, developer, um, and that's where actually a lot of experts uh, live. Right. Um, that also has a lot of attention has been given to amusement or leisure, uh, but also is that's also a very nice part of the city where it's, it seems to be a bit more remote and quite dense in terms of facilities and, and possibilities to to meet people and to, and to walk around. Mm. Um, so you have so you have certain hubs where the size or the scale is small enough uh, to walk around. But also, I mean, uh, opposite to that, you have the Civic Center, which is actually a town hall, which is a huge building with a curved roof and then with a huge park without with hardly any shade and so in summer it's a nightmare to be mm -hmm. um and there you can see that the scale is is really based on old principles that you also see in design principles like in beijing with tiananmen square you know which also has a huge yeah. uh, uh, scale um so that it's not very nice to be there um so you can clearly see a difference between what has been so developed by the state and the government basically to show off and where it's more on housing and and say amusement and so so it has all these different areas but it takes a while to really um dive into this because to be honest it took me years driving around a taxi to see where the hell am i because mm. there are not so many um um icons or really clearly recognized parts of the city so it, it looks very generic and that's what of course Ram Cole has also described several years ago um, that's also part of Shenzhen so bringing in more diversity so that it really can stand out and mm. say okay now we're here now we're there so that you really start to understanding where you are then it's still part of that DNA that should be developed yeah yeah it's fascinating. I would talk about showing off and talking about icons let's talk a, I want to talk a little bit about the skyscrapers because obviously we can't talk about China cities without skyscrapers as well, because uh, you know it, it's fascinating now that if I think if you look at the ten tallest buildings in the world, none of them are in America, and that I think seven of those ten tallest ones are in China now, and th there's like two in the Middle East and one in, or I get my numbers maybe wrong, but there's one in Seoul, one in Jakarta, so that's probably eleven. Um, so people are probably going to call me out on this already, but you get the general drift of what I'm trying to say. It's like, I'm absolutely fascinated by them and, and people think, oh, you know, it's just, it's a male thing, right? It's like, you know, you need to have these really tall structures to show off, right? But I, I, th I think there's a lot more to it than just that, right? Having the, the tallest in, in the city or the tallest in the world, it's a big thing. And I don't know, it has a sort of a spiritual meaning, I think, for the city as well. You can't have a city without a, a bloody great big skyscraper. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that's just a male way of looking at it? <laughs> Um, well, I'm not particularly fond of skyscrapers, so I don't know. But um, I think, I mean, a lot has to do, of course, with density and money. Um, of course, you want to show off, uh, you know, so the tallest building is always nice as long as um, you can keep it for, like that for a few years. Otherwise, another one will pop up. But um, um, especially when the ground is so expensive and you want to make money. And of course, skyscrapers is also a way to making money because you rent out all the different uh, floors and the higher you can build, uh, you know, uh, everything is, 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 is getting higher and higher. That's also what you see in Shenzhen downtown, even in the urban villages where village owners, if they see the possibility to knock something down and to build one that is three floors higher, they will do it because mm. it will it will accelerate money flows. Um, so that's also part of it in terms of density and making most of what you can do uh, within uh, within a city. Yeah. Um, and then and then, then if it's the highest, it's a nice way to brand your city. Yeah. I mean, that's I, yeah. I cannot say much more about. It. I mean, it's never been my field of interest. <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm just curious. I mean, how how sort of somebody like yourself who works so much at the ground level as well thinks about those skyscrapers because you know whenever i go to a new city especially in asia one of the first things i do is find the, the tallest skyscraper and go to the top it must oh, be really? it must be like a male yeah. thing like i've got to conquer this thing right i've got to get to the well, top there you I go must admit, 
Well, I must admit that um, I think it was September last year that I also went back to this uh, very tall building also in, in Shenzhen, in, in Lohu, which is uh, one of those uh, basically uh, first districts that got into development. Because when you go to the top, then you can really look. Absolutely. Um, into, you can look into Hong Kong, basically the rice fields that wow. are next to the border with Shenzhen. And then you look into all the, you look on top of uh, the villages. And you see the, so also with, I mean, if you just, come for the first time of course it's, it's an ideal way to get some sort yeah. of feeling of how does the city look like and how mm. how you know how does the development work and how far can i look and what do i see and and um so yeah i did the same thing but that's then more say to look outside of it not to the building itself yeah yeah that's fascinating hey so do you, when we you know from europe or america look at these cities in China or in particular Shenzhen, what can we take away from it? Because we've, we've already talked about, you've mentioned that it's easier to do this when you have the tabula rasa, if you like, is that, you know, you, you don't have a city of 20 million people. It's easier to plan this stuff, right? But it gets a little bit harder when you have legacy. And that, that's very true of Western cities, if I can say, use that word. Then, So what can we learn? I mean, what can we learn when we look at China about, organizing our own cities or making our own cities smarter is there anything we can take away um i think it's of course you can always take something away um um i think that also for them nowadays it's it's i mean tabula rasa just doesn't work anymore uh they really need to find new ways to how do you regenerate neighborhoods and uh, make them uh uh say future proof whatever that may be but it, Anyway, they need to think about new ways. And um, so what we can, um, I think what we can learn from them is, is how do you deal with, with density? Um, how do you deal with scale? How do you deal with, with speed? Um, um, and also in a way of how you can be flexible. Uh, we have the tendency to uh, start only designing when we have all the figures right, uh, when mm. it's as complete as possible, uh, when we know who is doing what and why. And in China, uh, you have to deal with what you have at that point and make the most of it. And um, so it, to me personally, I really had to learn my to trust my gut feeling <laughs> or say that you deal much more with intuition, that you need to think about flexible ways of, of dealing with your building so that you do not build for eternity. Mm. You're dealing with a building that might be having a different function in two years time. How do you do that? Um, so, um, um, uh, and of course, what I already explained, um, I was fascinated. I'm still fascinated by this hybrid structure of top down and bottom up mm. and that it's still very unclear who's doing what and why and that you try to find your way around um, that to me has been a very steep learning curve so and i still believe and that's also why we are still working in shenzhen is that we can also bring our knowledge there mm. uh, in regard to uh, urban regeneration but also how you can do much more integrated planning instead of just doing a very instead of just having a very technocratic approach because that's what you see a lot and I did mention that earlier, a very, you know, it's just a list of things that they just want to have done. And we are always looking at, but what can be more of quality? How can you add more quality to whatever you have there on the table that you want to execute? Mm. So what are um, goals that you can add to what you already have? Uh, and that means that you need to bring in different disciplines together, that you need to me need to collaborate more with with. with all kinds of stakeholders, uh, including citizens. And um, I think that's also a very fascinating moment in time, also in Shenzhen, that you see that the amount of stakeholders is growing rapidly. So it's not just black and white, as we tend to say, again, government, you have population. Mm. No, you have government, entrepreneurs, factory owners, um, volunteers, citizens. Um, so th th it, it has become much more pluriform. Uh, so many more people that are, that are having a say and want to have a say in how the city can or should develop um so there so that's a it's a fascinating time even though there are lots also restrictions uh, many more restrictions as i already explained in terms of of um having access to the chinese market but still i think that within that um uh, that society i think a lot uh, it's, it's really exciting to see where it's heading to mm -hmm. well Let's just talk about that a little bit because I, I want to put you on the spot, if I may, Linda, and unfairly mm -hmm. corner you whilst you're on on air on the podcast. You know, looking at the future, 
and you know you, you obviously look at new towns you've seen the growth of shenzhen from you know going way back to when you first came to china so you've seen how these these grow and you must be aware of other cities developing in in china as well i mean are there any cities that we have to watch out for you know that you think will be you know they could be a tier three city now but in the future they could be like the next center of x and x could be like you know it, you know it could be the next center of excellence for medicine or the next center of excellence for urban planning or whatever because you know lots of lots of things are happening in in china right now and you know we have to bear in mind as well that people talk about tier two and tier three cities in China. A tier three city could be 10 million people, right? So, you know, there's plenty of them. Mm -hmm. What should we watch out for? Because, okay, we've done Shenzhen. What's next? What's on the horizon? What's another city that we should pay attention to beyond the ones? We know Beijing, we know Shanghai, we know Hong Kong, obviously. Anything else? Oh, (laughs) I mean, yeah, of course, there are hundreds of million cities uh, in China. So, um, I mean, personally, I. But that's. I mean, the Pearl River Delta as a as a region is 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 very exciting because mm. normally we only talk about Shenzhen and Hong Kong. Um, however, you also have Guangzhou, you have Suhai, you have more than eleven cities within that small area that are more than ten million people. So um, when you look at that area as a, as a whole. Um, and now they're also making these, um, you know, they are building bridges um, to actually cross um, yeah. uh, Pearl River Delta to the other side. I think it will be fascinating to see how that area, which is dealing with with huge problems in terms of water management, but also in terms of pollution, but also the density of the amount of people mm-hmm. and the economics that are taking place there. I think it will be very exciting. Um, I can't really say, I mean, I don't know enough at this point to say, oh, you should watch out for that city mm. because that will be thriving in what, what you just said, you know, a medicine or, um, of course, Shenzhen as such, it's, it's, um, that's already a process of several years. It's trying to re-identify itself because it was a special economic zone. Therefore, it was really different from the rest of China. That is not the case anymore because the whole of China is, of course, in a certain state of development. But then, of course, like any new town after 30 or 40 years, um, needs to think, okay, well, who are we? What are we doing at this point? We are sort of, you know, outdated or um, everybody else is doing the same thing as we are. So where do we head to? I mean, where are we going um, so I think what China overall is trying to do is that, you know, it's not so much about made in China. It's more and more about being created in China. Um, that has been embraced also by Shenzhen. So it wants to be the most creative city of China. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that is a top down decision again. Um, um, and of course you have then creative parks and you have maker spaces and, um, and of course it will be a, a challenge to see how this top down and bottom up, will it, will it be able to, to come together? Um, so that it will be possible to make this a thriving technological, innovative hub, uh, also in terms of urban planning. And that's something that I'm still, um, very excited about to see if that will indeed happen. Mm. Uh, because it's also very easy to kill things uh, with your top-down planning. I mean, we talked about the the added value of, of many things, but it's also very easy to kill it uh, due to gentrification, uh, which is, of course, has a very bad connotation in the Western world, but not so much in China, um, since they welcome these developments uh, until now. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah... Um, or all sure. options at this stage. You mentioned, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, Zhuhai as an example. And for the listeners who, who are maybe not aware, it's that whole sort of Greater Bay project where they're building that. Well, the the bridge between Hong Kong and Macau and Zhuhai is one part of it, isn't it? Which is, yeah, you know, they, these haven't been connected before, and I think the bridge actually goes from Hong Kong to Zhuhai first, and then into Macau, doesn't it? I'm not sure about the actual in logistics of it but that Zhuhai region which is on the west side of the Pearl River Delta is or, or way, way over right you know on the other side of the bay that is uh quite a poor area by comparison and you know I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to set that up as a free economic zone so in the same way like you said with, with Shenzhen as well so it's going to be interesting if 
you know, Shenzhen is now trying to reinvent it as creative city, would it price itself out of the market that, you know, they would shift a lot of the, the low end manufacturing out to Zhuhai, right? And, and that would sort well, of pick up there, right? That'd be interesting to see if that happens. Well, I mean, a lot of manufacturing has already been pushed out of Shenzhen uh, years ago to Vietnam and Bangladesh and to other places. Mm. Um, of course, it also went to the hinterland of, of, of China. Um, I think what will be indeed challenging to see if you look at the areas that, of course, because of the connections being, uh, since they come closer, competition will increase. Um, so also Shenzhen, will it team up with Hong Kong? You know, will it be a twin city or um, how does that relate to Guangzhou and how does Guangzhou relate to uh, Suhai? So you have all these many different cities who have their own uh, trajectory. Um, and that's, of course, one of the things that the more things come to closer, uh, the more uh, a certain profile needs to stand out. So, indeed, it will have an effect on the other side of the Pearl River Delta. It's just, to me, at this point, unclear how that will mm-hmm. uh, turn out. To be. I mean, I don't know. I don't have enough uh, knowledge at this point to, to say something about that. Right. But we do know whatever happens, it's going to be interesting. So watch this space. <laughs> Linda Velassenrod, thank you so much for t- coming on today and sharing your, your, you know, your wealth of knowledge about Shenzhen and the New Town Institutes, what you're doing, the programs you're, you're working on there, and just generally about what's happening in China, the Pearl River Delta as well. Because you know, I get so many people now who are coming to me through the podcast and asking me, you know, where the hell is Shenzhen? I mean, keep hearing about this place. I need to know about it, right? It's on people's minds now and we're starting to hear about it and rightly so because for all the reasons that we talked about today, there's so much going on there that people should really find out. And I think, you know, this must be something that comes, you know, across the mind of your students as well is that, you know, how, how do you go and get a piece of the action? It's like, you know, if I'm a student in Almora or I'm a student in New York or San Francisco, what's the best, you know, what's the best way of getting into and discovering these markets? Like you did way back in the day, right? You know, when you came in 2005, do I just sort of buy a ticket and turn up or do I get on a program like yours? What are the options available for those who want to know? Mm. Well, I think the easiest way, obviously, is, is that you're part of a program because um, just going there uh, without speaking the language is, 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 is hard. <laughs> mm. um, and, um, um, of course, when working in China, there's a lot to do with building up trust. Um, so it's, it takes really a lot of investment. Uh, but uh, being, I mean, yeah, so the easiest way is um, if you're a student and it doesn't, I don't think it really matters which field is, that you see if you can get on a in an international program to see if you can just do an exchange yeah. of, you know, ranging from one month to six months. It depends a bit on on what is uh, was available, but then at least you have a feeling of how it works because you really need some time to dive into, and you need a sort of if you really want to study the city or work on the city. Of course, there's also a difference. I mean, you can study medicine in New York and you go and study medicine in in Shenzhen, but however, I don't think Shenzhen. Um, uh, in terms of education is not as high yet as somewhere else. But if you want to really study the city, uh, you need to dive into some uh, program where you actually have access to all kinds of, 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 of a network that can help you out and uh, get you into, t- in, into contact with, with interesting uh, stakeholders uh, ranging from policymakers to urban planners to um, uh, social activists um, so that you really know what's going on and that they can help you out. Mm-hmm. So when I think about the International New Town Institute, is that for urban planners and hist- was it architectural historians? Or is that sort of, you know, does that, you know, is that program really open to people with a wide diverse set of disciplines? I mean, we um, are not fixed to urban planning alone. So we have been working with social geographers, um, architects, um, sociologists, um, people who are working on water and um, uh, and uh, urban agriculture. But um, I mean, that's the range more or less. So it's really on, say, urban planning as a starting point. And from there on, you can actually uh, make that a bit broader. But um, um, yeah, that's a bit the limit of what we uh, facilitate. Excellent. Linda Vlasenrode, everybody, Programme Director for Shenzhen for the International Newtown Institute based out of Almora. Linda, thank you so much for coming on your show today and sharing your insight and knowledge with us. It's really fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure.
You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.